The topic, Jesus chooses a dozen men to assist him with his ministry. The title of our message, The Maker's Dozen. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, you're good. You're wonderful. You brought us together to hear your word. It's the power of God unto salvation, as we'll see. So, Lord, if there's anybody here that's not a Christian, I pray that you would uh, reveal to them that you died for them and rose from the dead, that they might live forever, enjoying the forgiveness of their sins and having been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and declared righteous. For those of us who are saved, Lord, we want to see you in these words. Uh, we want to understand the setting, the first century, feel the excitement as Mark brings us into the story, but also to have insight for how we should live right now, today, tomorrow, and all the days that you have given us until you're coming. And so bless our time, be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Ever fear you were going to be crushed when caught in a large crowd? It happens more often than you might think. One study identified 215 such crushes taking place over a 30-year period. It showed that they occur most frequently at religious events, with sports and political and musical events coming in close behind. The one you might be most aware of and probably have seen uh, footage of happened in 1989 when 95 people died in a crush, crushed to death at a soccer match at Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield, England. This year, at least 1,470 people, that's a real number, were crushed to death outside Mecca in the deadliest disaster on the annual pilgrimage in a quarter of a century. The annual pilgrimage to Mecca is, it's uh, spelled H-A-J-J, I would say it Hajj, but it's pronounced Hag. And so 1,470 people were killed. The previous deadliest ever incident at the annual Hag happened in 1990 when a stampede killed 1,426 people. Stampedes and crushes are a major danger at the pilgrimage since it attracts more than two million pilgrims a year, all moving simultaneously in close quarters through a number of rituals over the course of five days. It's a very, very dangerous uh, pilgrimage. In verse nine, we're gonna see that Jesus was in danger of being crushed by a huge crowd that sought him for healing. I've come to think that the potential crowd crush may have been a satanic tactic to kill Jesus before he went to the cross. Jesus countered using a tactic of his own to be able to stay both safe and go on setting free those who were held captive by the devil. Once we get into our text, you'll see the verses are all about the confrontation between Jesus and Satan, describing their tactics and their counter tactics. It prompted me to ask and want to answer the following two questions. Number one, what tactics do you see the devil using to whip his captives? And number two, what tactics do you see Jesus using to win the captives? Let's take a look first of all in verses 7 through 12 at some of the tactics the devil uses. Now the remainder of Mark chapter 3, all of it, and not just the part we have time to study today, has a particular theme. It's illustrated down in verse 27. Look there for a moment where Jesus said, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Satan is the strong man. Uh, his house is the world. His goods are human beings, non-believers that he holds captive. 
Jesus likened his own mission to binding the strong man so that he could set free those captives. Let's see how that played out. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, they came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. How big is a multitude here? Well, it's easily in the thousands, and more likely it is a crowd of at least 10,000. It was a throng, it was a mob, all of them pressing forward to touch Jesus. It started in Capernaum forcing Jesus to head for the sea. This was a scary crowd comprised of very needy people who were unlikely to be courteous to one another in terms of pushing forward. Jesus was in way worse danger of being trampled to death than Walmart employees when they opened the doors on Black Friday. There's a website, sadly, Black Friday Death Count. It says the first death at a Walmart uh, resulting from the post-Thanksgiving tradition came in 2008. That's the year a seasonal associate was killed amid throngs of shoppers seeking deals on Long Island. Just before the store's 5 a.m. opening, the associate was hit by a sliding glass door that fell as shoppers outside pressed against it. The official cause of his death was asphyxia, meaning they trampled him with the door on top of him and he wasn't able to breathe. Can you say Amazon? The only trampling I get is my cat going across my keyboard. It's pretty vicious, but I'll probably get in trouble. Amazon probably sponsors somebody that you don't like, right? Are we boycotting Amazon? No. All right, thank you. The t- not yet. <laughs> the text doesn't say it, but I can't help but think that this crowd may have been a satanic tactic to try to kill Jesus before he went to the cross. You understand that there was a lot going on between Jesus and the devil. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness where he and Satan battled one-on-one. And the devil kept coming against him and coming against him. And the devil who tried to kill uh, Jesus in a sense by not allowing him to come into the world by killing so many before by wanting to kill all the Hebrew babies in the time of Moses, by having Herod slaughter the babies in the first century. Of course he was trying to kill Jesus before he could go to the cross. And here was a great opportunity. If crowds were going to come and gather around him, let's crush him to death in a crowd crush before he can complete his mission. Jesus' counter-tactic was to withdraw to the sea and have a small boat ready for his safety. The indication of the text is that Jesus walked along the shore preaching and healing, but he could quickly retreat into the sea and into the boat if a crowd crush started. It's brilliant. Now, by the way, our normal reaction to any danger we face in ministry is to retreat from it or to conclude that God's not in this if it's dangerous. That might make sense, but it's not the Lord's leading. We need to keep the priority on ministering the gospel and discover spiritual tactics to stay safe while advancing the gospel, not retreating from it. And then there's Paul the Apostle, who cared less about danger. If he was in danger, he said, all right, there's a crowd in there in that assembly hall that wants to kill me. 
What a great opportunity to share Christ. There's a crowd here in the temple that is beating me to death. Can I talk to them for just a minute about Jesus Christ? I mean, this guy didn't have any sense of anything other than Jesus Christ and sharing him. Now, I'm not saying we, you know, rise to that level or anything like that, but uh, a little bit of danger is necessary. The guys that, and, and Aida going to Colombia, a lot of people say, oh, you're going to Colombia? Because as they pointed out on Wednesday night in Colombia, we think of three things in Colombia, coffee, cocaine, and communists. And uh, the cocaine and the communists are not good things, and Americans uh, are sometimes in some danger. Can you say kidnapping? And so people, oh, you don't want to go there. I remember when we were going to the Philippines in the 80s, my dad would always warn me of headhunters because he was stationed in the Philippines during the big one, the war to end all wars, and uh, they still had uh, headhunting tribes in those days. And I said, Dad, um, okay, I'll watch out for headhunters. How will I know them? Will they have shrunken heads on their belt? Or, you know, what, what's the deal? But anyway, so people always think you're in danger. And if you're in danger, you shouldn't go. But we know that we go wherever the Lord leads us and sends us. You don't have to be stupid. You can have a strategy. If there's danger, you can strategize and counter the devil. And that's what, the, uh, that's what Jesus did. Verse 10. He healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. Now, we miss something in these verses on account of the translation into English. We especially need to understand the meaning of the word afflictions. We tend to think of it as describing garden variety physical ailments, but its meaning is actually a little more sinister. It's the translation of a word that means to whip or to scourge. It's describing afflictions that are the direct result of the devil's mastery over these people. He's being portrayed as whipping them with a scourge. These then are diseases and conditions that are directly caused by Satan. It's wrong to blame all sickness and suffering on the devil, but it's just as wrong to assume he does not cause a great deal of sickness and suffering. Remember, this whole section is describing Jesus versus the strong man so that Jesus can plunder his house. As master of that house, these folks were whipped, scourged slaves that Jesus had come to free. He healed them. How many, we cannot say. Seems in this case, at least, they needed to actually touch him to receive a healing. Jesus was not led by his father to simply say to the multitude, you're all healed. To me, that would be an easier way of doing things, right? Get up every morning. There's a crowd. You're healed. Go back in, have breakfast. <laughs> sort of like, well, never mind. I was going to say something that would get me in trouble. Um, and I'm learning to be a kinder, more sensitive person. <laughs> anyway, uh, so he had to actually touch him. I was thinking about this that, this week, just kind of as a meditation. And I was realizing that though Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, your salvation and my salvation is a one-on-one -on -one thing. I come to the cross where Jesus died for my sins, where he is my savior, where he is my substitute, where he is my sacrifice. And though that includes anyone and everyone who will come, it's very personal, is it not? When you get saved, it's about you and the Lord uh, in that one-on-one -on -one relationship. Now, there's another group in this multitude those that are possessed by demons. Verse 11, the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out saying, you're the son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. 
An unclean spirit in the New Testament is simply a synonym. It's a more descriptive term the Jews used for a demon. The terms unclean spirit and demon are interchangeable. A demon is unclean in that it's wicked. Evil spirits are not only wicked themselves, but they delight in wickedness and promoting wickedness in and among human beings. These demons recognized Jesus as the Son of God. They knew he was fully God. They knew he was the second person of the Trinity. He was their creator. And he had watched them fall as they joined with Satan in his rebellion. Jesus had been healing all those who were whipped by the devil. This is a second group. We would say it's a second wave in this crowd. A common technique in movies that depict epic battles is to have a second enemy force arrive just when you thought you'd won the battle. You Tolkien fans, you remember in The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, there at the battle outside the gates of Gondor when things looked terrible, all of a sudden Theoden came with the riders of Rohan, blew their horns, and you thought, wow, the tide has turned, there's hope, there's victory. And just as you think that, other horns blow from another source And here come these guys riding these giant oliphants, crushing people as they go. And so there's that second wave that is meant to dishearten you and to catch you off guard. And that's, I think, what the devil was doing here. He says, hey, guys, now that, you know, Jesus has countered with this tactic of, of, uh, you know, sitting in the boat if necessary, I want to send in the second wave. And here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to declare to the crowd that he is the son of God. Now, why? And on Jesus' part, why rebuke them for telling the truth? You would think that, you know, this would be a good thing. Well, it's not. It's because you don't want to be associated with liars who are telling just some truth. Think of the cults as a good example. There's always some truth in their message, but it's surrounded by half-truths and outright lies. We're not excited if a Mormon gets up and talks about Jesus Christ. Because the Jesus Christ they're talking about is not the Jesus of the Bible. He's not the God-man that we're reading about this morning. He's someone else. This is why you wouldn't go witnessing door-to-door with a Mormon. Instead, you want to uh, give them an apologetic for who Jesus really is. You don't want to have that kind of an association. You don't want to go to your neighbor and say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm Gene from Calvary Chapel and this is Joe from the Mormon church and we're here to share Jesus with you and whichever church you want to go to, that is going to be fine. No, so you don't want to be associated with error. So Satan tries to defend his house, but his tactics fail. Jesus employs tactics of his own, binding the strong man, or we would say keeping him bound, setting the captives free. It's at this point that people always wonder, why don't we see more demonic possession today and why don't we attribute more afflictions to Satan? I've I've covered this a lot and I'm going to cover it again and again because it keeps coming up. People read the Bible and they say, man, it seemed like nine out of ten people were demon-possessed. We don't see that today. Why not? And the tendency is, sadly to go into trying to find what's going on in the demonic realm because there must be just as much demonic activity as there was then. And so people get into all manner of weird thing and it's a distraction. Let me tell you why. And I think our emphasis here on tactics and counter tactics helps us answer that question. When Jesus was on the earth in the first century, the devil had fewer tactics at his disposal. If maybe not fewer different tactics. One example, 
I would give you is the current scourge of pornography. Don't get me wrong, there has always been pornography. I remember Pastor Don McClure pointing out one time in a Bible study that much of what is considered great art is really just pornographic images. It's nude people. And that would be just as pornographic in the 12th century as it would in any century. And so there's always been pornography of some kind. But today you've got to know that pornography is proliferating as never before in history. And rather than give you statistics that people always challenge, I'm going to tell you something that blew my mind this week. Pornography is so rampant, so readily available, that Playboy magazine announced a major change. Playboy will no longer publish nude photographs of women, according to the New York Times, quoting Scott Flanders, the company's chief executive. Here's what he said. You're now one click away from every sex act imaginable for free. It's just passe to have nudes in your magazine at this juncture. Pornography is so rampant, it's so available, it's so prolific that Playboy magazine has to reinvent itself in a non-pornographic way in order to continue to sell issues. One jo writer was joking, he goes, now you really can read Playboy for the articles, <laughs> which I don't recommend, by the way. So do you understand what's happening? This was not available to the devil in the first century. Why waste a demon or several, or a legion on demonic possession when you can enslave millions of men and women through the modern proliferation of pornography, which they actually choose for themselves? Why afflict people with illnesses when they are destroying their own lives more at a much deeper spiritual level? It would be a waste of resources. For the devil to still be possessing people on a large scale is an incredible waste of resources and a terrible spiritual tactic. Are people still possessed? Yes. Are they possessed as much? I would say no. And that's because the devil is smart. He's not stupid. That's why we always need to ask, what tactics do we see the devil using to whip people? He's not stuck in the first century and neither can we afford to be in our understanding of his devices. While we sit around wondering why more people aren't possessed, the devil is gaining captives one click at a time without wasting resources. Whatever the devil is using as a whip, as a scourge, we can discover a counter tactic with the Lord's help and go on presenting the gospel. The tactical approach to the long war between God and Satan also helps me understand why we see fewer healings and fewer miracles in general. It's because the age in which we live is a time when folks are being reached more through weakness, through frailty, through persevering through sufferings than they are through the miraculous. It isn't miracles that reveal we are telling the truth about Jesus. It is our transformed lives and our submission to God and the sufficiency of his grace in our darkest times. We live in such shallow times that something genuine becomes appealing to people. And it's more genuine for me to go through my sufferings with grace and the peace of God than to just perform a miracle and to still be a jerk in my personal life. People need to see the real thing. Those held captive by the devil today, by the tactics he is using, they really don't need to see a miracle. And even in the New Testament, when there were miracles, a lot of people did not get saved. In fact, some people got all the more hardened. 
People need to see that we are the miracle, born again, forgiven of our sins, decreasing every minute so that Jesus might increase. Verses 13 through 21, what tactics do you see Jesus using to win the captives? Now, we noted specific tactics Jesus used in the encounter with the multitudes sent from Satan. He changed his location, moving the field of battle to the sea uh, in order to gain a tactical advantage. And he silenced the unclean spirit so as not to discredit the source of his power. In verse 13 through 21, we'll see the things that are more general, tactics that stand the test of time and assure us of victory in this long war with evil. Verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and he called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Luke's gospel records that Jesus first spent all night in prayer. There's no more important tactic than prayer. You can do more than pray, but you can't do anything unless you've prayed. In this case, the Father revealed to Jesus a plan to keep Satan on the run and to win captives. It was to call to him a small group of men to disciple who would then disciple others, who would then disciple others on down to the present time and up until the Lord's return. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that uh, he might uh, send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. 12 meant something to these disciples. Jacob or Israel, had 12 sons, each of which represented a tribe. Ishmael, who was born to Abraham through Hagar, also had 12 tribes. These guys would understand from the number 12 that they were the foundation that would establish the government of the kingdom of God on the earth. But first, they must be with him. They'd already been with Jesus, called to follow him. This was something different, something deeper. It's been said and it's true that every disciple is a Christian, but not every Christian is a disciple. It's a way of capturing the thought that we can hold back or slack off or slumber in the midst of the battle. It's a call to discipleship. And and, uh, times in our own life, or we've all known people who just, they seem to be Christians, they have a profession of faith, but they're just spinning their wheels. They're really not committed to serving the Lord. That's what we're being shown here. Prayed up disciples next need to be sent out to preach. Our main tactic is to present the gospel. We're told elsewhere it is the power of God unto salvation and that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we want to stay grounded in using the word of God in preaching from it, in teaching it, in order to really see the power of the Holy Spirit work in the lives of others. Jesus' guys would have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons, and they sure did. We read about it in the book of Acts. If this is a tactic, why don't we have this power, especially to heal sickness? Well, there are gifts of healing that are available to the church. But let's be honest, not as many people are healed today as were when Jesus was on the earth. Let's ask the apostle Paul about that. He said this in 2 Corinthians. Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, Paul said, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, and distresses, all for Christ's sake, because when I am weak, I am strong. Paul said... I boast in weakness because then the power of Christ is upon me. We tend to think I boast in miracles and healings because then the power of Christ is upon me. Paul says, no, that, I have the gift of healing and I've been used several times to heal people, but the general tone of the age in which we live is power from weakness, power out of infirmity. 
And that's why we don't see more healings, because we don't live in that kind of a time. The choices of men that Jesus made were odd. Uh, Simon, verse 16, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the nickname Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. They went into a house. Now, Simon is given the nickname Peter, meaning rock, but he was anything but stable. And we normally point out, though, that after Jesus ascended and sent the Holy Spirit upon these guys, Peter became really grounded and was used in a great way. And though that's true, and I don't want to take anything away from that, Peter also went on to have a notable episode where he refused to eat with Gentiles and was causing a massive split in the church until Paul the Apostle got up and publicly rebuked him. And so Peter, very much like us today, James and John were sons of thunder. It meant that they were given to over-quick reactions. Matthew, the former tax collector, would be despised by all Jews that he was sent to reach. He always had an uphill battle. You know, today we like the really severe testimonies. Come and see this guy was an enforcer for the mob. I killed a million people or whatever. We, we want the most outrageous testimony. Matthew may be a little hesitant to give his testimony. Matthew, you want to give your testimony? I was a tax collector. I'm sorry we didn't get that. I collected taxes. Taxes? You collected taxes? You were a traitor to the nation of Israel? You were a, a rebel? Now, there were some people who would get it and say, wow, what an amazing transformation Jesus can make. But others bring out their tax return from the year, you know, 2 BC or 2 AD and, and want to have that thing reviewed. I, I just, he had an uphill battle. Simon, the Canaanite, interesting in that this world, word Canaanite is spelled differently from Canaan, uh, and it, the word actually means zealot. He's Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a political party of Jews who were dedicated to overthrowing Roman rule by violent means. They were murderers in many cases. They were, to Rome, terrorists. And so another interesting call and then, of course, Judas, one of the weirdest characters in the Bible. Taken as a group, these guys would not be anyone's first choice. This is not the A-team as far as resumes go. You ever been a, an employer and you're just trying to read people off of resumes? It's hard, but these guys, you'd read their resume. Half of these resumes would be in the round file before you ever got to the face-to-face -face interview. On top of all that, Jesus had just been thronged, almost crushed by maybe 10,000 needy people. Were 12 guys really going to make that big of a difference when there were 10,000? On top of that, they still needed to be with Jesus for a while. They couldn't even be sent out on their own yet. The preaching of gospel by disciples is itself a poor tactic on the surface. We got through the revelation, and there's a portion where God sends angels flying around the earth to preach the gospel to every creature on the earth. They get the message perfect. They're beautiful to look at. No one is left out. Duh. Good plan. So, no, God said, no, Gene, you're going to preach the gospel just to your neighbors, people at the coffee shop, wherever you happen to be, and that's how my church is going to grow. That's not a great plan. But it's God's plan because God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the gospel has done just that. It has confounded 
the wise. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. Jesus and his 12 returned to Capernaum. Their arrival was noticed and another multitude came together seeking help and healing. It's interesting, there seems to be no concern here that Jesus might be crushed. That tells me that this multitude was not a satanic tactic to kill Jesus and therefore the Lord reacted differently. This was a run-of-the-mill multitude and he was in no danger from them. Though tired from their journey and hungry, Jesus and the 12 had no time to rest and eat. And you know what? There's just going to be times in your life if you're serving the Lord when there's no time in your life to rest and eat and when you're going to have to sacrifice certain things and it's no big deal. Verse 21, but when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him for they said, he's out of his mind. Now in verses 31 through 35, we're going to see that his own people were none other than Jesus' brothers and his mom. A quick comment regarding Mother Mary. Protestants and Catholics argue over the term brothers in this verse. We say Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus was born. These are his brothers. They say Mary was a perpetual virgin and that the word brothers can mean other relatives like cousins. While we argue about that, we both miss something I think that's more significant. Mary thought her son was crazy because he was ministering the gospel while ignoring his own physical needs. Let me say that again. Mary, venerated by some, accused the Lord Jesus Christ of being out of his mind. She went with his brothers, or if you want to say they're his cousins, to lay hold of him to make Jesus stop ministering for God. Wow. That puts Mary in a whole different light. Not to denigrate her in any way, but she's acting like she's not even saved not someone who is a co-savior with Jesus Christ. She doesn't understand her son's mission. She wants him to quit talking. She thinks he's gone crazy. He's so religious, he's crazy. It's interesting. My dad, coming from a Roman Catholic tradition, picked up on this. And after I got saved, he said, son, if you read the Bible too much, you'll go crazy. And he was serious. He was dead serious. He didn't want to go crazy. And so he didn't read the Bible at all. And I think that's a, a general philosophy out there among a lot of people. Read that too much and you'll go crazy. And so uh, interesting comments on Mary. It seems as though she was very confused about Jesus. Now, how did your family react when you got saved? How does your non-believing family act towards you right now? Many of you faced or you still face hostility. It's a powerful tactic that Satan uses to try to stop you in your tracks. That's what it is. It's a satanic tactic to get you to quit serving. And you need to counter that somehow and keep on ministering. Now, Jesus' counter tactic in verse 35 to this is to see other believers as your spiritual family and thereby urge your non-believing relatives to become Christians and join your forever family. In the ridiculous but still popular musical, Jesus Christ Superstar, how many of you are familiar with that at all? It's still somewhat popular. Judas is more or less the hero. That's all you need to know about that. But at one point he asks, he actually sings, every time I look at you, I don't understand why you let the things you did get so out of hand. You'd have managed better if you'd had it planned. Why'd you choose such a backward time in such a strange land? If you'd have come today, you'd have reached a whole nation Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. 
And though all of that analysis is wrong, the songwriter captures what I'm suggesting. God's plan of salvation seems upon first examination to be terribly flawed. For a while, it seemed the gospel would never make it out of the first century that it would remain a small Jewish sect, a part of Judaism, like a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a, an Essene uh, or, or a Christian. And yet God had an amazing plan for the gospel. Looking back, we'd have to say it was a brilliant plan. The gospel has marched through the centuries all around the world to the effect of saving multiplied billions of men, women, and children, all because of one-to-one communication, all because people share their faith in Jesus Christ. It's done in a weakness so that we know that God must be doing it. It's so insane that you look at it and you say, only God and his power could keep this thing going. It's like that paragraph, One Solitary Life, showing how Jesus, who did none of the things normally associated with greatness, nevertheless has had more impact on the human race for good than all the armies and navies and parliaments and kings. His impact comes through his followers, comes through you and I, And that's scary because it's given rise to the comment Christianity is always one generation away from extinction. Of course, that's not going to happen because God's providence sees to it that the gates of hell do not prevail against his church. But on paper, all it would take is for all Christians to quit sharing their faith. And no one would get saved, theoretically. And so that's what I mean. This is not a good plan, but it's God's plan. And when you look at it, you think, Only God would come up with this plan. Only God could empower this plan. This is the power of God unto salvation. C.S. Lewis captured a sense of the overall tactic of the Christian life. Here's what he said, and I'm going to close with this. Now, the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his own way, come to share in the life of Jesus Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which always existed and will always exist. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we will, as John says, be sons of God. We shall love the Father as he does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came into this world and became a man by, uh, in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has. Every Christian, then, is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. Let's pray together.